Good morning, Peachtree. We are still at home. And I don't know about you, but I've never spent this much time at home before. I mean, there's always the occasional trip. There's always the excursion. Even just being out and about in our community, whether it's going out to dinner or being with friends. And yet so much of our life now centers around the home. And I can't help but wondering if there is a redeeming quality to this period of time that we're in of sheltering in place. When you look at the scriptures, sure, the Bible talks a lot about sanctuaries and temples and gatherings, but the primary way that God met his people was always in the home. And I wonder if God will meet us in surprising ways at home. And so we're launching into a new series of messages right now. We're going to talk about how God, how the Spirit of God encounters us at home. We're going to learn to worship at home, to discover grace at home, to trust in our homes, to become more resilient in our homes, and to experience devotion in our homes. We're going to go all over the Bible. We're going to look at a prayer. We're going to see a parable. We're going to look at a proclamation and even a moment where we get to discover how God will be with us in the posture of being at his feet. This is what we're going to get to discover in our homes. And as Frank Viola once said, God is not looking for a place to visit. He's looking for a place to dwell. And I believe that that is true for you right now, where you are, that God wants to be with you and encounter you right where you are. Today we're going to talk about what does it mean to overflow at home? What does it mean to have a life that is filled to overflowing, that promise of life abundantly, life teeming with life? And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to enter into a prayer. Back when I was in the eighth grade, I used to attend this church camp out in the Texas Hill Country. It was nestled right by the canyons of the Guadalupe River. We would swim in the emerald green waters of that river. We would lazily float and relax in the little whirlpools of the rapids. It was almost like nature's little hot tub in the hot Texas sun. And as we did all of those different things that you would experience at camp, large group gatherings, but also these smaller, more intimate gatherings. You would get together with a handful of people that you had probably never met before coming to camp that year, and you would have a small group leader. Now, typically, a small group leader was somebody who was, you know, probably in their early 20s. Maybe they were right out of college. They were young. They were vivacious. They were energetic. Well, this one time I got to church camp in the eighth grade, and my small group leader was a guy who looked like he was still alive when the Bible was actually written. We had no idea when we were 14 years old how old he might really be, but he seemed ancient to us. He was tall, he was lanky, this was the 80s. Do you remember those short polyester gym shorts that some people would wear? He had a different fluorescent color of those gym shorts every single day. He would wear his shirt tucked into it, and he had these glasses, the kinds of glasses that you would play contact basketball with, with the strap around the back. No matter what he was wearing, he was ready for basketball. I think he was a gym instructor, and he was the greatest guy. At first, we kind of rolled our eyes thinking, oh my gosh, what is this person going to teach us? But we discovered that even though his sense of fashion was questionable, His love of the Lord and his love for us, 
was unrivaled. I remember when we got to the last day. We got to the last day and we're in our small group and I'm thinking that we're going to play some fantastic game and we're going to have this deep discussion, but that's not what happened. We had this 90-minute session that was supposed to be the capstone of our time together. And he looked at us and he said, I want you to pair up and I want you to do something. He took out his old tattered Bible and he asked us to do the same. He asked us to turn to the 23rd Psalm. And he said, for the next 90 minutes, you and your partner are going to go away and you're going to memorize this psalm in the next 90 minutes. You're going to come back and you're going to recite it for all of us. And we all groaned and we're like, are you kidding me? We're going to sit here and we're going to memorize something. What is this school? And he looked at us and he smiled and he said, trust me, one day you're going to need this prayer. It was 14 years later, and I was standing in the living room of a family, three generations worth of eyes staring me in the face. Three young children, probably like four, eight, and ten years old. There was also a woman, and then there was a set of parents, all of these eyes looking at me. This was in the New York City metropolitan area the day after 9-11. And their son, their husband, their father didn't come home. And they said, Pastor, is there anything we can cling to? Is there anything that we can do? Is there anything that we can pray? And I went to their family Bible that was sitting on a little table and I opened it up to the 23rd Psalm. And I said, pray this every single day while we're together. And I will be praying it every day with you and for you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, you comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One day, the old coach said, you're going to need this prayer. The 23rd Psalm is maybe the most famous part of the Old Testament. And even though it's incredibly familiar to us, I'm surprised by the hidden gems in this prayer. It's basically like a three-act play or three scenes in the movie. The first scene takes place in a green pasture. It's this pastoral scene where there's this shepherd and there's this flock and the particular care of this one sheep. And we discover that when we're with this shepherd, we don't lack anything at all. Many of you know that one of my heroes in ministry and in life is a man by the name of Dallas Willard, whom I got to study with. 
And Dallas was someone who, like all of us, every once in a while would wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. But one thing that Dallas would do that would be different from probably what you and I do is that instead of at 3 o'clock in the morning churning over the worries and the cares of this world, you know what Dallas would do? He would sit there and he would meditate over and over again for hours sometimes on end on the words of the 23rd Psalm. After Dallas died, he wrote a book that was put together from all the different publishings and retreats that he had done on the 23rd Psalm. And in that, it's called Life Without Lack. I want to read you just a little portion of just his 3 a.m. reflections on the 23rd Psalm. He says this, The Lord is my shepherd. In other words, I'm in the care of someone else. I'm not the one in charge. I've taken my kingdom and I've surrendered it to the kingdom of God. I am living the with God life. The Lord is my shepherd. And what follows from that? I lack nothing. That's the natural result. I shall not have anything that I want. That's what Jesus teaches. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else will be added. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. What kind of sheep lies down in a green pasture? A sheep that's eaten its full. If a sheep is in a green pasture and she's not full, she'll be eating, not lying down. He leads me beside the still waters. A sheep that is being led besides quiet waters is a sheep that isn't thirsty. Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks this water will become thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I provide shall never thirst But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of living water, springing forth to everlasting life. He restores my soul. The broken depths of my soul are healed and reintegrated in a life that is union with God, an eternal, everlasting kind of life. That's what happens in a green pasture. When you go to a green pasture with your shepherd you know that you are in the care of someone else and that all of your needs are provided for. But sometimes God has to make us lie down in a green pasture. In 2005, Kelly and I and the girls moved to San Antonio, Texas. And while we were there, we brought with us our six-year-old golden retriever by the name of Zoe. This was my first child. I absolutely adored this dog. And part of the bond that Zoe and I had together is that we would run several days a week. I went to the vet one time and the vet was examining Zoe and asking about how she was doing and her life, her eating habits, her health, and talked about activity. And the vet asked if we ran together and I said that we did. And the vet told me, you're going to have to be really careful. That dog is so obedient to you, so attentive to you, that that dog would literally run herself to death. You're going to have to make that dog rest after a run. He makes me lie down and green pastures. You have a benevolent father and shepherd. And there are moments like this that are what would be referred to as a forced Sabbath 
a Shabbat, a stopping of certain things. This is a green pasture moment if you have the eyes of faith. And so will you stop by the quiet waters and the lush pastures that God has put before you right now? And will you be nourished by what he gives you? The first scene is of that of a green pasture. The second scene is a darker one. In fact, it's a dark valley. With all of my education, with all the studies that I have ever done, it was only when I went to Israel for the first time in 2013 that I discovered that truly the valley of the shadow was a real place. I want to show you a picture of it right now. This is known as the valley of the shadow. You might recall in the story of, that Jesus tells of the good Samaritan, of a man walking in between Jericho and Jerusalem, and that he fell at the hand of robbers. The reason for that is that there is this narrow gorge in the area, area that goes between Jericho and Jerusalem that provides the only shade from the intense sun. And so you would walk through this valley of the shadow, and it was a place where robbers could easily hide. I had no idea that in the life of King David, that when he was referring to the valley of the shadow of death, that he was drawing off of a geographic reality, that there is a place that for most of the day is dark and dangerous, and that you have to walk it in order to get where you're going. But it is a place of great fear. In April of 2016, my wife Kelly had open heart surgery. She had been living with a lifelong condition of aortic valve that they kept saying, one day, one day, one day, you're going to have to get that repaired. She was born with the condition and in January of 2016, that one day became more urgent. She went to a doctor's visit and he said, are you sure that you're feeling okay? And she says, I feel great. He said, the tests show that you shouldn't. And it wasn't but within weeks of that that she couldn't even walk up a flight of stairs without labored breathing. And so we scheduled the surgery for, with the right surgeon and as soon as we could. And thanks be to God, she made an incredible recovery and has this wonderful mechanical valve that provides for her for each moment of every day. You can imagine what it was like to have the pastor nominating committee of Peachtree Presbyterian Church contact us towards the end of April 2016. We're in the midst of a family health crisis and we're like, thanks but no thanks. And yet as the months dragged on, we noticed the difference between relief and peace and felt the call of God to come and to join you to be a part of this family of faith. And so we moved out in December. And in January, we started a journey together. It was really disruptive to move with uprooting two teenage girls and relocating our lives to such a far distant place. But in March of 2017, Kelly went to the doctor's office again, and they did all the normal tests. And she could tell from the furrowed brow of her cardiologist that something was wrong. He said, we need to run some more tests to figure out what actually is happening. I got to talk with the physician and ask him and say, hey, what, what could it possibly be? 
And he said, he said, we don't know for sure, but likely there's either a blockage or there's an infection, but neither one of those two things is good. And so she had to go in for a test where they sedated her and took the camera to be able to take a closer look. I was waiting in the waiting room of that test out at the hospital here in Atlanta when the doctor came out with his mask down from the test with a big smile on his face. And he said, everything's fine. I said, it wasn't an infection? He said, no. It wasn't a blockage? He said, no. He goes, you know what it was on the other test? And we can see it now. It was just a shadow. It was just a shadow. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You can either be hit by death or you can be hit by its shadow. For those of us who are following our good shepherd, even in the valley of the shadow, you are still in the good care of that shepherd. And you do not have to fear, for he is always, always with you. And you might be in that valley of the shadow right now. It's dark. It's difficult. Hebrew poetry is much more precise than our English counterpart. 26 Hebrew words that lead up to one word and then 26 Hebrew words that cascade away from it. At the very heart of this psalm is one word that in English we translate into one phrase. For thou art with me. 26 words that lead up to that conviction. 26 words that lead away from it. Look, the virgin is with child, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then at the end of the book of Matthew, it says, remember that I am with you always to the end of the age. Even if you are in the darkness, even if you are in the valley of the shadow, God, your good shepherd, is with you. Here's the problem. The problem is that you and I are the kind of people that keep walking through the green pastures of life and we lie down in the dark valley. We do the very opposite of what our shepherd asks and leads us to do. When you're in a green pasture, that is the time to receive God's nourishment. And when you are in the dark valley of the shadow, That is when you are to keep putting that next step in front of you and to keep on going. You were never meant to live in the valley of the shadow. You will have a different destiny from a green pasture to a dark valley to your true destiny, a house, a home. Oh, when a home is at its best, it is, as they say, no place like home. It's the place where you can let your guard down. It is the place where you can truly be yourself. It is the place where you can truly relax and not be on. Sometimes home isn't at its best. And I've heard from many of you who say that this time at home can be an incredible struggle. What's interesting is that your final destiny is a home, but it's not just any home. It is the house of the Lord. 
And the house of the Lord, according to Psalm 23, is defined by three characteristics. It's defined by oil and a cup and a table. The oil is oil that is poured over a head. In Middle Eastern cultures, it was symbolic of being an honored and cherished guest. God, the Lord of hosts, invites you into his home and he anoints you with oil as an honored, cherished guest. As you come into God's house, as you are in God's presence, he cherishes you and celebrates you. And that means that your cup never runs empty. That as you drink, it keeps getting filled up. In fact, it is so full that it is overflowing with God's goodness. Do you understand that God has done so much for you that your cup overflows? And that the way that heaven is described is that your cup will be full. And then there's a third quality to God's house. There's a table. A table where we get to be together. And one of the interesting things about this part of the prayer and the psalm is that that table has enemies at it. And you might be like, that's the only part of the psalm I don't like. The part of the psalm that you don't like is the most important part. It means that at this table, all is reconciled. All is restored. All of the petty jealousies, all of the arguments, all the conflict, all the anger, all the resentment, all of that falls away as you now sit at God's table. And as you sit at God's table, you realize you were a part of an ever-expanding, incredible family. And that is what your destiny is as a cherished guest with a heart that is full to overflowing and all of your relationships restored. There's a true story of an actor who was at a public event and he was famous and people were asking him to recite all different kinds of poems and poetry and they were doing little bits of Shakespeare and famous plays and at one point he offered at this event for anybody to have any requests for anything to be said and there was an old preacher who was sitting close to the front and he asked if the famous actor might recite the words of the 23rd Psalm. The actor agreed to do it but then he said I'll only do it on one condition and that condition is that you recite it after I recite it. The old preacher agreed. The famous actor recited every single word flawlessly, the perfect intonation and pitch and rhythm and cadence. It probably had never been performed any finer. And then the old preacher got up and his voice was battered and beaten from misuse throughout all the years. And as he began to recite, everybody's eyes welled up with tears. Someone asked the old actor, what was the difference? And the actor said, I know the psalm, 
but he knows the shepherd. I'll bet you know this psalm. But my question for you is, do you know the shepherd? Do you know the one behind this prayer? Dallas Willard once said that the the phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, is written on far many more tombstones than it is on actual lives. And so my invitation to you, to us, through this season, up through Memorial Day, is to make this our home prayer. And maybe you'll say it quietly to yourself at bedtime. Maybe you'll join hands with your family and say it at a meal. Maybe you'll say it as on your knees the first thing that you wake up in the morning. But my invitation to you is to join me into saying the 23rd Psalm every day for about the next 40 days. That we make this prayer our home prayer. To recognize that our destiny is with God. One time I heard the preacher Ken Ulmer give a message on the 23rd Psalm. And Ken Ulmer says that this psalm reminds him of those old westerns, those old westerns that were like that he used to watch growing up that were kind of formulaic and, you know, it would fall the same kind of pattern of it looks like that, you know, the bad guys are going to win, but then the good guys overtake them. And then eventually the good guys kind of, you know, have the bad guys all cornered together in like a saloon or something like that. And eventually they would say, you're surrounded, come out with your hands up. Ken Ulmer says that when he reads the 23rd Psalm, it's like we're surrounded. He says that there's a shepherd in front of you, that there's a rod on one side, that there's a staff on the other, and that there's goodness and mercy following in the rear. You're surrounded. That you've got a really good shepherd in front of you, that you've got a rod that will protect you from the enemies, that you've got a staff that'll pull you back from the brink of disaster, and that you've got things like goodness and the love of God that are following in your wake. That there's a shepherd in front of you, there's a rod on one side, there's a staff in the other, and goodness and mercy following in the rear. And so you've got to come out with your hands up. Got to come out of despair with your hands up. You've got to come out of the darkness with your hands up. You've got to come out of that disease with your hands up. You've got to come out of your depression with your hands up. You've got to come out of all that is holding you back in this life with your hands up. Because you see, at the heart of this psalm is that God is with you, that he surrounds you. But as long as you are trying to be your own shepherd, this prayer will be meaningless to you. You gotta put your hands up. You gotta surrender. One day, one day you're gonna need this prayer. And that day may be right now. I don't know if you are in a green pasture or a dark valley, or if you are at home at peace, shalom with the Lord but I do know that you will need this prayer. And so will you pray it with me? Our Heavenly Father, we so often try to be our own shepherd, to be in charge of our own lives, to think that we can go our own way. And that's why, God, we keep walking through those green pasture moments that we fail to see when you provide and give us nourishment. I pray for anybody who is in the valley of the shadow. And in the midst of the darkness, they need to know that you are close, that you are near, and that they have nothing to fear. 
I pray, God, for people who gather around tables in homes that are filled with resentment and anger, unresolved conflict, and that they need your incredible hospitality to tear all of that down. 